Today, we get to jump into likely the most well-known story featuring the prophet Elijah, the thrilling story of the showdown on Mount Carmel. Last time, Ian showed how Elijah challenged the people of Israel to get off the fence, to be all in for God or for Baal. God is always at work in our lives, even in the times that we would say are bad times, like in this time of drought and suffering for Israel. God knew what it would take to make his people desperate for himself, the only true God. He knew that lack of water was hard on the people, but in the long run, a drought of God, the one true God, would lead to a fate far worse. And God, for the sake of these double-minded people he loves, was willing to stoop down to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Eight years ago, my husband Dave and I visited the site of the legendary showdown at the OK Corral. We traveled for miles through the Arizona desert to arrive at this little tiny hilltop town that was the only sign of life for as far as we could see, a thrillingly dramatic setting. What we learned less thrillingly was that the showdown wasn't as clearly a contest between good guys and bad guys as we'd always heard. We had a brand new grandson, our first grandchild, and he was named Wyatt. Well, the only Wyatt I'd ever heard of was Wyatt Earp, and I wanted to find out more about this upstanding lawman. But that was a disappointment. Mr. Earp was likely a pimp and certainly a sinner, and I think I'll let my grandson redefine the name for me. As with most human ventures, the shootout at the OK Corral, which wasn't even at the OK Corral, was not a clear fight between the right and the wrong people. But no showdown could have been clearer than this one we're going to be focusing on today between the prophets of Baal and they're not a God and the God of Israel. After challenging Israel to choose whom they will follow and being met with dead silence from them, crickets, Elijah draws the people's attention to the uneven stakes of this contest, this showdown, stakes that he has called for. First, he says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, we don't know why he doesn't refer to the 100 prophets whom Obadiah, Ahab's household manager and one who feared the Lord, had hid in caves and fed. It's possible Jezebel has had them executed, or that they were just too fearful to stand on Carmel with Elijah. Suffice it to say, only Elijah was able and willing to stand publicly on the side of Yahweh on that day. In David's day, a century before this showdown, worship of Yahweh was at its zenith, all Israel full of praise and sacrifice to God. And now, only one man, Elijah is standing not only before these 450 false prophets, but also before what seemed like all of Israel who'd turned their backs on the God who'd chosen them and told them they were his treasured possession. So much they'd forgotten. Seeing this one man standing before them and speaking to them on behalf of their God, they could have recalled how God raised up one man, Moses, who through faith and obedience to God and some help from his brother Aaron spoke for God to Pharaoh, commanding, let my people go. Through great signs and wonders which produced unbearable suffering in Egypt, Pharaoh finally allowed the people to leave. God's people had been in a bad way. 
and the Exodus was the greatest spectacle of God's care in the deep memory of the Israelite imagination. Here again, in the time of Elijah, the people are in a bad way. Not only are they enslaved, this time to the worship of idols, but this slavery seems to have numbed their very souls. They were silent and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, thoroughly lost. Paul sums up the flirtation mankind has had over the centuries with idolatry in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This was the situation of Israel on Mount Carmel. Their foolish hearts were darkened and God was about to bring a great light to those hearts in the form of fire. We talk a lot about sin, but often fail to recognize what ground sin springs from. N.T. Wright so succinctly comments on this in his exposition of the first chapters of Romans. The fundamental problem, according to Romans 1 through 3, is not sin, but idolatry, a failure of worship, which leads to, but is itself deeper than, the multiple failures of human living. It's what Elijah was facing with the people of Israel and what we face today. As Ian said last time, whatever we look to to bring us joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, and meaning, aside from the one true God, can become an idol. Whatever is in our lives that, if taken away, would make us feel destitute, lost, hopeless, has become an idol. I remember being a young wife, not yet a mother, on a women's retreat with other pastors' wives who were older than me, all of them mothers. There was an altar call to forsake any idols you have in your life, and one woman was obviously deeply struck and repenting. I admired her, and I wondered what in the world kind of idol could she possibly have? which is nosy and not a good question to ask, I know. Turns out it was for her children. Her sense of well-being and peace rose and fell with the state of her children instead of being anchored in the daily love and provision of God. Young, naive me, who wasn't interested in having babies at all, thought, who in the world would make an idol out of her children? Well, turns out even the woman who thought she didn't want children could make an idol out of her children. We're constantly tempted to make something ultimate in our lives that is not God. But God will not share you with another. He is jealous in the best possible way, knowing that only he can satisfy you. He alone is created and traverses the contours of your heart and soul. He knows what makes you, you, and he knows that what we falsely worship will become a tyrant and eventually turn on us and destroy us, as Baal worship was destroying the Israelites. So Elijah sets out the parameters for this showdown, and it's easy to see that he's giving preferential treatment to the prophets of Baal. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. 
and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. No one, no one would be able to accuse Elijah of stacking the deck in his favor. He's allowing the Baal prophets up to bat first and allowing them to choose the best bull to offer to their God. And finally, the people of Israel find their voice. They say to Elijah that the rules he set out are good. God, through his prophet, is wisely reeling in their hearts. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I bet you never thought that joking or even sarcasm could be a sign of faith, right? Of course, the object of that sarcasm here is not another human being made in God's image, nor should we ever belittle our fellow man. But Elijah has such sure faith that Yahweh will answer that he has some fun making fun of Baal. What's the matter with your God, he taunts. Is he daydreaming, reading in the bathroom, sunbathing on the beach, hungover? He knew that God was about to obliterate the reputation of this no God. The prophet's calls failed. Their frenzied dancing on limping legs, which must have looked ridiculous, failed. Even abusing themselves with their blood pouring out of them failed to get even one teeny response. And as an aside here, trying to keep the favor of someone or something or substance which is not God can lead to self-abuse and often does. If he was a god, he was humiliating them. And likewise, the things that we make idols out of instead of fulfilling us, leave us empty and humiliated if we're honest. I often think about these words we sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Even the most wonderful person in the world can never ever meet your needs. They'll crumble under that weight, but Jesus, our shepherd, will carry us forever. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. 
And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah here demonstrates Yahweh's own care about his people as he calls them to draw near and carefully observe. Elijah's focus now is to remind the Israelites of the covenant God made with them. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord. The Lord had given them a pattern through Moses of how to set up an altar for worship of him, but they had destroyed that altar. Elijah restored it. He reminded them from whence they came by choosing 12 stones, recalling the 12 sons of Jacob, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Every Israelite there could trace his or her origin back to one of those 12 sons. He's also reminding them of the story in Genesis when Jacob wrestled with God and God finally said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, wrestled with God, and have prevailed. He's recalling Jacob to them, a man tenaciously hanging on to the only God who can bless for a blessing, to the time here now where Jacob's descendants, clinging instead to a false God who can't answer, or act in any way. How God's treasured people have fallen, and yet in his mercy, God raised up this prophet who's patiently tutoring them again in the ways of God. Now, something to note about the stones. They were unhewn stones, stones that Elijah didn't shape because God said in Exodus that if you make me an altar of stone and use a tool to fashion the stones, you will desecrate it. In other words, use stones that I alone have shaped, untouched by man's designing. This whole showdown was not Elijah's doing. It was of God alone, just as the sacrificial work of Jesus was all God's doing, unaided by human hands. Then Elijah handicapped his own sacrifice with not one, not two, but three thorough dousings with water. No one would ever be able to call this a tie. And next we come to the part of the text that is so movingly revealing about the heart of God. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Look at this simple yet profound prayer. No pitiful wailing here, no cutting and abasing of oneself here. Elijah offers this prayer at the time of the oblation, the time halfway between noon when the sun starts to decline and sunset. Mid-afternoon, the traditional time when the priest used to offer sacrifice in the tabernacle and the temple, what David in the Psalms refers to as the evening sacrifice the rituals God instituted for man to approach him. But it's the second part of the prayer that I want to draw your attention to. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Do you see? It is God who initiates drawing us back, and it is he who enables us to turn back. Fleming Rutledge addresses our predicament this way. From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testified that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, 
so irremediable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can remedy it. God's people have been appallingly unfaithful to him as we ourselves have been. But instead of rejecting them out of hand and turning his back on them, the only turning God is engaged in here is with their hearts, turning hearts back to himself. Nothing short of divine intervention could remedy Israel's God-forsaking idolatry. And of course, God's ultimate plan involved God the Son giving up his life for us on the cross so that our hearts of stone could be turned into hearts of flesh, hearts that could amazingly, by God the Holy Spirit, become temples where God dwells with us. It's God who initiated the turning of hearts on Carmel, and it's God who is the one always seeking to turn your heart toward himself. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This fire even consumed the stones. What fire does that? God was placing a huge exclamation point. No, many exclamation points at the end of the Lord. He is God. We know that when fire falls in the scripture, it usually signifies judgment. However, God was not judging the people here, but the false gods and their promoters. Elijah then dealt with them, with the prophets, according to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 13 says that if there arises among you a prophet that tells you to follow other gods, he shall be put to death as he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. God is out to destroy all that would destroy his people. That's what wrath is all about. God's destroying whatever is destroying his beloved. And you are that beloved. As we close, let's read together a profoundly wise meditation on this yearning, suffering love of our God for his people. Christ's blood is a metaphor that stands primarily for the suffering love of God. It suggests there is no sorrow God has not known, no grief he has not borne, no price he was unwilling to pay in order to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. It is a love that's endured the bitterest realities of suffering and death in order that its purposes might prevail. Christ's blood signifies primarily the depth of the divine commitment to rescue, protect, and sustain those who would otherwise be lost. Christ shedding his own blood on the cross was God's ultimate showdown against idolatry and evil. In Christ's voluntary, loving suffering and death, the enemies of God were disgraced and defeated for all time. There, God provided for your rescue for all time. Understand that right now, at this moment, and at every moment of your life, He relentlessly seeks you. Daily, He prepares things to remind you of the deep well of His love, which never dries up, if you will but pay attention. Spurgeon once said, when all the earthly things shall have melted in the final fire, his love will still wear the dew of its youth. His love for you is eternally young, 
It never grows old. Do you belong to Jesus? Maybe you're reminded of his love today because of his goodness in something. Maybe you're reminded because you're parched with a drought of him in your life. He will rescue you if your heart has turned away from him, banishing the idols and filling you with himself once again. Do you not yet know him, but find your heart strangely yearning after him today? These are the very fingerprints of God drawing your heart. He will gladly welcome you if you will give yourself wholly to him and trust him to save. Let him have his way. Let us pray. Father God, have your way in us. Lord, we say you alone are God, the one we desire to love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forgive us, deliver us from any idols, and make your home in our hearts. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save. We want to be saved. We pray in that glorious name of Jesus. Amen. What does this story have to say about the character of us humans and about that of God? Have there been times in your life when God has designed a hard season or a great mercy to turn your heart back to himself? How might your relationship with God be affected if you reviewed each day's events to look for the hand of God in them? Are you willing to try this? Pray for one another.